think most of you know for a number of years I was in the restaurant business and we were concerned about three major things. We wanted the customers to come in and have a total great experience. We wanted to make sure the ambiance was right, the table was clean and beautifully set, and the restaurant was pretty, and they enjoyed just the setting they sat in. We want to make sure that the service was above reproach, that service was awesome. And then we want to make sure that the food was great. And I used to teach and uh, preach back then, although I wasn't a preacher, that uh, we wanted the customers to leave, and they'd come back for any one of those three variables, but you put them all together in a way that it was over the top, definitely they'd come back. The greatest form of advertising for the restaurant was for people to tell their friends. We called it radiation. They'd go home and tell their friends, six friends, that, man, we had the best meal at this restaurant. It was great. What a great, you know, enticement for us to go try that restaurant with a good friend tells us it's a great restaurant. Conversely, if they had a bad experience, you know how many people they'd tell? Probably twice that number. Man, we went to that restaurant. It was horrible. Don't go there. So we realized how important it was for that customer to have a complete, full experience. <clears throat> when you join a church, it's important that you grow. That's the most important thing you can do as a Christian. Peter said that. He says in the end of his epistle, he says, that grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul said to Timothy, one of the last things he wrote, to be strong in the grace of Jesus Christ. We can join a church. We can be all excited because I just got saved. And I'm going to a new church, and it's exciting there. And I like the music, and I like the preaching or the teaching, whatever it might be. But you know, a lot of times that wanes off. How is it that so many people join a church and 30 days later they don't come anymore? They stop coming. They're all excited for three or four weeks or a couple months, and all of a sudden they stop coming. It's because they're missing out on the complete experience. And I want you to know the complete experience here includes both worship and Sunday school. I said for a number of years that uh, if you had to choose between the two, choose Sunday school because it's, a, it's an opportunity to grow. But I'm here to tell you, you miss church as well if you don't come to worship service. And I'm so thankful you're here today because obviously you come to worship service. But Sunday school is huge in your relationships. You've heard this before, but I'm going to say it again this morning. Somebody joins a church, the likelihood of them being in that church five years from now is 86% if they join a Sunday school. Why? Because of relationships. You get into a small group, you meet friends and begin associating with them and realize there's other people in this world dealing with the same things you deal with. And you get, the, you get that accountability, but you also get that prayer support and that relationship. Conversely, if you join a church and do not join a Sunday school class, the likelihood of you being a member of this church in five years is 17%. Joining a Sunday school is huge. Coming to worship is huge, and enjoying all these things. Wednesday night's a great thing, too. But I believe if you can plant a flag and say, hey, we're going to be part of a Sunday school class and part of worship every Sunday unless we're out of town or divinely precluded from being there because of an illness or something like that, then I want to be a part of that Sunday school class. we got great Sunday school teachers. The way you go about this, you pick up one of those little flyers out there in the foyer on the Welcome Center and pick a Sunday school class that you like to try first. If that doesn't have a complete fit to you, look at that for another one the next week. And, you, and we advocate that we tell our teachers, the teachers want this too, Pastor Joel says this, we want you to shop all the Sunday school classes until you find the one that's just a perfect fit. And I promise you, there'll be one that's close to a perfect fit for you. And join that class and be a part of that. Enjoy the people there. Enjoy the study. Bring your questions with you. You don't have to talk. Some people don't want to go to Sunday school because they're afraid, man, I have to share. I don't know what I'd share. You don't have to share. You just sit there and listen. Take it in. At, at some point, you might want to ask, I don't understand that. Would you tell me? The teacher will say, absolutely, let me explain this a little bit further. Look, look at the scripture again. Where it might be, we're in the service here, you can't ask questions. In Sunday school class, you can ask questions. So we're doing this prayer endeavor right now for five weeks. And even if you don't feel like you want to join it forever, join us for five weeks. 
check out our Sunday school class. They're going to be talking about prayer and how important it is. And we don't need to be lukewarm. That's the whole essence of that video there. Lukewarm in our faith. Lukewarm in our prayer life. Lukewarm in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to be sold out completely. So that's the advertisement for today. And I pray that you'll find that Sunday school class for you. And uh, I, I was a Sunday school class teacher for years. And it was a true blessing just to get to know people that way. And to have those relationships and a close relationship like that. If you have your Bible here this morning, turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. And you know what I want to talk about this morning? As you're turning your Bible there, I want to talk about the fact that it's too soon to quit. Listen very carefully. It's always too soon to quit as a Christian. We can't quit as Christians. Jesus Christ didn't quit walking up Calvary's hill. He could have. He could have called 10,000 angels and been out of there. But he didn't do that. He walked willingly up that hill of Golgotha to Calvary's hill and laid himself down upon that cross. You know, the, uh, let me set the background here for our scripture this morning. It's on Paul's second missionary trip. We've studied a couple of different uh, settings where he's been on his second missionary trip. Paul arrived at Corinth having been at Athens. And Athens was a city full of idols. In fact, the theologians would tell you there's probably more idols in Athens at that time than men and women, more than, more than the people. Paul preached on Mars Hill. You know that sermon there found in Acts 17? It's interesting. He was surrounded by all these Greek scholars. And those Greek scholars, man, he had them with him. Man, he, they realized this guy was a great orator. This guy knew his stuff. He knew the Hebrew scriptures, and he knew what he was preaching about. They were enthralled with Paul. They thought, man, this guy is brilliant. What were the Greeks all about? All, the Greeks were all about wisdom. Man, they wanted wisdom. They, they wanted knowledge. They, they weren't very spiritual. In fact, in that city, they, they prayed to a god of no name, it says there in Marcel in chapter 17 of Acts. They didn't really know who they were praying to, but they prayed to somebody, so at least they realized there was a higher being. It's kind of like what they want to advocate in schools today, intelligence. You know, the, the, the intelligent creation theory that came from somebody bigger than us. They don't want to acknowledge his name is God and has a son named Jesus Christ, but they say there's somebody bigger than us. They're the same with the Athenians then. The Greeks were with him all the way up to the point when he started talking about the resurrection. What? Wait a minute. You, you, uh, you're losing us here right now. There's, there's no such thing as a resurrection. Nobody comes back from the dead. They had wisdom. They had knowledge, but they didn't realize that God could do this. And so they lost them. They were too smart for the gospel. They were interested all the way up until they talked about the resurrection. Think about the Athenians being too smart for the gospel. You know what we have in America today? People that think they're too smart for the gospel. I don't need the gospel. Why? Because, man, look at me. I'm so successful. I'm a great employee here. i got a great job. i got a beautiful house, a family here. Everybody goes doing well. And then I'm being blessed right now. Why would I need God? Why would I need to acknowledge that I'm a sinner? Why do I need a Savior? I'm so privileged. I'm so far up here. I don't need a Savior. Because why? Because I'm doing great on myself. I do so many funerals, and I always talk about the fact that someday you and I are going to be laying in state just like this gentleman down here. Have you ever pondered the thought of what happens when we die? Is there life after death? These are huge questions. And I tell folks it's worthy of considering those questions and trying to figure out the answer. Is there an answer for that? Can we know what happens after death? And then I say, you bet. Let me tell you what we can know. But the Athenians weren't interested. So I believe as Paul went to Corinth, we're going to read the scripture today, it was a monumental change in Paul's tactic and his strategy. He was looking at a whole different perspective about what he was doing. And he was sold out to what he was doing. So for God to come down and for Paul to come to the realization that I'm going to change my strategy. And I want you to hear that this morning. Paul, Paul was discouraged. 
He was depressed, and we're going to look at that here. You say, Apostle Paul was discouraged? I get discouraged, but Apostle Paul, really? How could that be? We all get discouraged. We all get depressed. We all get setbacks in our life. But that's kind of the setting here as Paul is leaving Athens and going to Corinth. If you found your way to Acts 18, stand with me, if you will. We'll start with the very first verse. Read the first 11. It says, chapter 18, verse 1, After these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and they came to them. This is when all the apostles left as well. Claudius, the emperor there, was kicking everybody out of Rome, so they realized it was a good time to leave. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come to Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him in blasphemy, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray. Father, may you bless the reading of your holy word. Father, let us see this morning, Father, what you'd have us to know and to learn about, Father, pursuing and, Father, fulfilling the calling you put upon our life. Father, we do thank you for the example of Paul. We thank you for your holy word, Lord, that lives. Father, I pray right now that you change each one of our lives, Father, beginning with the pastors here this morning, Lord, that we would leave this place committed to not quit. Father, we thank you for all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Paul came to Corinth and he was overwhelmed with failure. Think about all the places he'd been run out of. He had to leave many cities he visited before they killed him. It was that desperate. They turned against him that badly. He was overwhelmed with fatigue. He was overwhelmed with frustration, with weakness. It says in scriptures even he was desperate for his own life. I want you to listen to this. In his letters to the Corinthians, he explained how he came there when he came there years before he wrote this letter. This is chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. He says this, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, it says this. He's speaking to the Corinthian church again. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, for our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired of life. He was worried that he was going to kill, but he was also worried he was going to run out of energy. I don't know if I can stand this much longer. I'm so weak. I'm so fragile. I'm burdened beyond measure. Paul was truly discouraged and depressed. And now he enters into Corinth. He was leaving bad to worse leaving Athens to go to Corinth. Corinth was a definition of immorality. Slang for people that were living an immoral life back in that day and age in Greece, you know what they called them? Corinthians. They didn't have to be from Corinthian, from Corinth. 
But they called them Corinthians. Why? Because that's what they thought of Corinthians, of Corinth. They were vile, wicked people. In the center of their city, upon a hill, was a temple of Aphrodite. It was a temple of a thousand prostitutes. Corinth was very easily the most debased city. First of all, in all of Greece, but also, arguably, in all of that area. Paul was depressed and discouraged. You and I are not meant to sludge our way through this life, the victims of circumstance. We aren't. Discouragement doesn't come from God. We all have our share of setbacks. But it's interesting how Satan uses discouragement. Of all the tools that Satan has, and he has a lot, I believe that discouragement is probably his number one tool. Well, how could that be, Pastor? You know, he uses it, first of all, more than anything else. I believe if you think about your life, all the attacks of Satan you've had, probably it's been discouragement. Discouragement causes major heart disease, major heart problems. When you get discouraged, you know, it heartaches. But let me tell you what else discouragement does to you, and this is why Satan uses it. When you and I get discouraged, you know what happens? We become paralyzed. All I can think about is, man, I just don't feel good. I don't feel like doing anything today. I feel bad. I can't look at this world from God's perspective anymore because I just feel so bad. I've been so discouraged for so long. Discouragement leads to depression. It paralyzes us. We are all subject to discouragement. If you think in your own mind, you don't need to raise your hand, but I know you can probably remember back last time you're discouraged. I can. Where does discouragement come from? Disappointment is one of the things. That I had higher expectations of somebody. I had higher expectations of something that was going to happen. It just didn't happen. I was disappointed. Disappointments come and go in this world. I've had three pastors in the last two weeks come to me and talk about disappointment. Disappointment in their people. Disappointment in things in the church that weren't going the way they'd hoped they'd go. They'd been praying for a long time and just weren't going that way. One of them said to me, and I thought this was kind of profound, and I had to think about it. You think about it in your life for a minute. Have you had more people in your life that disappointed you than impressed you? That's what he said. I got more church members in my church, he told me, that disappoint me than impressed me with their faith and their walk and their desire to serve the Lord. More people disappoint them. I'm not saying that to throw the church under the bus. We all know the church is God's bride of Christ. But people are part of the church. So this happens. But I want you to hear the fact that there's going to be people in your life that disappoint you. They do. I heard somebody Friday that told me they left the church because the pastor didn't come to the hospital when the father was there and the father ultimately died. And I, I can appreciate that. I can appreciate the fact that the pastor not being there. pastor can't be everywhere. Yours tries to be everywhere, but I know I've failed sometimes but really I'm going to leave the church because a pastor didn't come to the hospital and that's a serious situation you lose a loved one a pastor should be there but sometimes it doesn't happen but when we begin basing our opinion about the church on somebody you know what's going to happen you're going to be disappointed every time because even the pastor I know how much you love this pastor I'm just kidding I know you love him even I fail sometimes okay Pastor Joel doesn't fail very often but every once in a while he fails too I think maybe we all fail. We all, unfortunately, accidentally or sometimes just not thinking right, disappoint people. Am I basing my whole spirit, my whole attitude on people? Or am I basing it on Him? It's hard as a human being. We've got to operate out here in this world. 
We've got to operate on our own people. Think about this. Discouragement comes sometimes from fear. It comes from anxiety. It comes from life circumstances. I mentioned that a minute ago, the disappointment of things not working out the way you want them to. Or I had no idea this was going to happen. Or I had an accident. Or I had a flat tire. Or so the guy wouldn't pass my inspection because I need four brand new tires. Oh my gosh, I don't have that kind of money to buy four new tires. So discouragement comes from all kinds of life circumstances. Think about this for just a minute. Discouragement comes from unmet expectations. And a lot of times, especially in marriages, sometimes the expectations are unrealistic, but a lot of times they're realistic and the person just doesn't meet them. The mate or the kids don't meet them. That's one of those things. Kids miss sometimes the expectations we have them. Why? Because they're kids. They're young. They're not thinking as wisely as we are, and we don't think that wisely all the time either. Failed relationships can cause disappointment. Let me tell you one of the big things that causes disappointment and sets you up to be disappointed and discouraged. It's a stalled-out life with Jesus Christ. We've talked about it before, but if we're not growing, we're going backwards. It's like trying to run up a, a down escalator. We're not getting very far unless we put all the energy. The minute we stop running up that escalator, what happens? We go backwards. When you're a stalled-out follower of Jesus Christ, when you're stagnant in your faith, when you're not growing, you know what? You make a very easy target for Satan. And let me kind of follow this through, take this little rabbit trail for just a second. A lot of times, the people that cause the most trouble in churches, you know what, who they are? Unfortunately, the people that aren't growing anymore. They just kind of stop growing. And so all of a sudden, they still come to church, go through that much, but they're not growing personally. They're not having an exciting relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this, too. They make easy targets for Satan, and so what do they do? Sometimes because their life is kind of crumbling around them, they bring that into the church. And they want to make other people feel bad, too, because they feel bad. And so they start nitpicking. I've told people for years, if anybody wanted to be critical about the church, the body of Christ, you know who could probably do the best job? Me. Why? Because I know a lot of you. I know what you're going through. And if I wanted to use that to, to, to make you feel bad or throw you on the bus, I could. But that's not why I'm here. I'm here to edify and to encourage and build up. And so it's sad sometimes that people, unfortunately, when they're not growing, they begin, begin to be used by Satan. And Satan will use them to do these things. Paul realized that if I don't begin growing again, then I'm going to begin to be used by Satan. He realized he was putting himself in a position to be used by the enemy, not by God Almighty. I want you to hear this one last thought, too, and this talks about Paul. Paul was a major soul winner. Your pastor has never seen a major soul winner be a complainer. Do you hear that? I have never met a major soul winner that was a complainer. Why? Because that guy is focused on, man, who can I reach next? Or who can I help get back right with their faith? Or who can I tell about Jesus Christ that's never heard about him? Listen very carefully. When we are discouraged, the greatest thing we can do is begin praying about it, but also re-engage in the ministry. We get discouraged because we've slowed down. Not that things don't come into Christians that are fired up and going 100 miles an hour, but you know what? They usually pass through it. Man, this hurts me. Do you know I'm still moving forward? I'm still moving forward. I'm not going to let this discouragement sink my ship. I'm not going to let this discouragement paralyze who I am. Discouragement comes our way sometimes every day. There's things probably in my life I can get discouraged about every single day, but I'm not going to let it. It passes through my mind like water off a duck's back. It's not staying. It's going. It's leaving. Paul had his setbacks. He had times of disappointment. I want you to realize, though, in the midst of his disappointment, and he was discouraged. I just gave you two scriptures out of Corinthians. You can probably find a dozen scriptures in Corinthians where Paul talks about how bad he felt when he came there about how discouraged he was. 
But you know what? Listen very carefully. The story of the Corinthian church. Paul was there to build a new church. The story of Corinthians is one of the great triumphs of building churches in all the New Testament. When Paul got to Corinth, there weren't any Christians. When he left, you know what? There was hundreds of Christians. He was there a year and a half. He built a phenomenal church of sold-out people. They were earnest. They were devout in their faith. They were followers of Jesus Christ, and they glorified God. They got off track later on. But he built a steadfast church in the midst of being downtrodden. So you know what Paul did with discouragement? He turned it in to victory. He said, I'm discouraged. I'm tired. I'm in there. But you know what? I'm here for a reason. Don't miss this thought this morning. The gospel will win its greatest triumphs where the circumstances seem to be the very worst. You hear that? The gospel will win some of its greatest triumphs where the circumstances seem to be the worst. Why? Because you're down and out, and all of a sudden God shows up. Man, I'm finished and done. I am totally discouraged. I'm finished. I'm despairing here. But for God. I love that word, but. But for God. God wants to take our worst things and turn them into his victories. God delights in taking the worst circumstances and turning them into marvelous victories. Whatever you're going through, whatever discouragement you're dealing with, you know what God wants to do with that? He wants to give you victory. He wants to show you that he's a great, mighty God, that he can see beyond these things. But, Pastor, you just don't know how big these things are and how overwhelming they are. Well, you're not thinking about how big your God is. God wants to take your, your issues, your circumstances right now, and turn them into victory. Why? So you can spend the whole rest of your life bragging about how big God is and how great he is. God doesn't want his followers walking around defeated. He wants them walking around victorious. So I want you to know, because the Bible says it, but also I've seen it personally for years and years, God will take the worst circumstance you've ever seen and give you victory so you can reflect God back into society as opposed to spending the rest of your life being hurt and sorrowful and, and maybe even talking about how that God never showed up. In your life. He's going to show up. He wants to answer your prayers. He wants you to grow through it. I want to look at a case study here this morning very quickly, looking at Paul's life, uh, that it's always too soon to quit. Paul did three things here, and I want you to notice these things. These are three encouragements to you and I. First and foremost, number one, we need to seek out some close, godly friends. Look at the first five verses here of chapter 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila and Pontus, uh, from Pontus and also Claudius. I'm sorry, Aquila and Priscilla. Um, two friends he met. They were tent makers. You know, Paul was a tent maker, so he joined them in their business. They became very faithful partners in the ministry. And then uh, he didn't know these two people. They're brand-new friends there. He put himself in a position, though, to make new friends. And also then comes along Silas and Timothy, who he'd served with before him. These are steadfast men in the ministry. Paul surrounded himself with people that are going to edify him. People are going to build him up. Proverbs 27:17 says this: "As iron sharpens iron, so the man, so the countenance of a friend counts in someone, somebody else." The greatest God-given gift of encouragement comes through friends. We need to surround ourselves with people that are going to encourage us, people that are going to build us up. I think you guys all agree with me. If you found out your kid was hanging around with uh, all the kids at school that were dealing drugs and stealing and those sort of things, man, couldn't get a kid away from that person fast enough. We want our kids to have friends that are going to help them be better individuals, that encourage them to do the right thing, that are Christians as well, and help build them up. Well, a lot of times we as adults don't think that same way about ourselves. As adults, every bit as much as children, we need people in our life that are going to encourage us. 
I want to surround myself, and I have at this church, people that are going to make me want to stand in a stronger way for Christ. People that are going to help me be a better Christian, walk in a greater way with my faith and with my family. You know, I, I believe with all my heart that even if you have to stand by yourself, you always stand for what's right. But it's so much easier to stand with friends for what's right, isn't it? i got some other people that are standing for the same thing. It's awesome. Unfortunately, too many times we get people in our life that aren't edifying us. And we haven't identified it. I like that person, but have you really pondered the thought that every time they come around you, they treat you like you have garbage can ears and they pour stuff in your ears that you don't need to hear? They seem to know everything about everybody and they want to pour it into your ears. So you know too. Isn't that crazy about her? Or isn't that crazy about him? And, you know, and, and it's sad. A lot of times we relegate that whole gossip thing, that whole murmuring thing to women. They're, they're pretty good at it and men don't do it as much. Hey, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I hear guys sometimes do just as badly. They sit around, they talk about other people. You know, the Bible is very clear on that. You know, but it's, it's amazing too. This is pretty good. I, I get it sometimes second, third hands, what's going on or somebody's having trouble and someone wants to let me know about it. I don't get too much firsthand because uh, I believe they know I don't have garbage can ears. If I can help, which a lot of times I get the information because I can help and want to help. But if they're not telling you something because they want you to help the situation, they don't need to be telling you, okay? If you're not going to be in the direct line of help. Or if they start telling you, say, you know what? I don't need to hear that. Let's pray about it, though, okay? I've shared this for the years with our church. And I said, even in the hallways, if they start telling you something you don't need to hear, pray with them. Say, hey. I don't need to hear that, but let's pray right now because I can tell this on your heart. Why don't you talk to that person about it? Or why don't you take that to the pastor, Pastor, pastor Joel, either one of those guys. Take it to them and see if they can help. You pray with them right there in the hallway. And uh, that's not all the things we pray about in the hallway, but can you imagine all of a sudden if everybody's praying in the hallways what people will be thinking? You know, that person's saying something. We don't know which one it is. But listen, more than that, to build the body of Christ, we need to be all about encouragement and edification. We don't need to be about tearing people down. Don't need to be about telling people other people's problems and secrets from a perspective. And it's sad sometimes that uh, that uh, some people have gotten onto the idea of murmuring and gossip. So what they do to shield their gossip, I want you to pray about something. Let me tell you this whole horrible thing about somebody. I hear things about people. They come to tell me, show me, you know what? I don't tell my wife hardly any of that. Why? Because I want her just to love that person the way she sees him in the hallway. It's the same with us. Why not spend our time building people up as opposed to taking them down? We need to surround ourselves with people that are going to hold us accountable but also going to be encouragers to our life. That they're going to help us be. Whose life are you pouring yourself in? And whose life is, who's, who's pouring their life into you? It's important that we surround ourselves, number one, with precious people. Encouragement number two that we can see out of Paul's scripture here is to live your life compelled by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Remember a minute ago I said, even if you have to stand by yourself, you still stand for Christ. Paul did that over and over. But I believe that Paul was so discouraged and so depressed here. He had those two friends they made that were tent beggars. But Paul got to a point where I, I just kind of rest. I got to kind of, kind of regroup this thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when his two ministry assistants came, you know what happened? The Holy Spirit said, okay, you've got your rest. Now it's time to go. Let's march. 
When you have men of God or women of God in your life, you know what that does to you? It takes you to a whole new level because I know they've got my back. I know they're praying for me. I know they're going to take care of me. The Holy Spirit compelled Paul to build one of the great churches in his time in one of the most vile cities of all time. Paul was compelled to testify. He was single-minded. He was sold out. He was on fire. Paul was an impact player. We know that by setting his life just to this far. Everywhere he went, he made a difference. He made an impact. The great church was getting ready to be built in Corinth there. Paul was discouraged and needed encouragement. God needed a man to make a difference. In the midst of our discouragement, in the midst of our hard times, in the midst of us being having major setbacks in life, you know what God wants to do? He wants to use you to build something. He wants you to use you to be an encouragement to somebody else. He wants you to go to somebody else that seemed to be dejected or discouraged or depressed. Go to them and say, hey, I've been there before. In fact, as recently as yesterday. But let me tell you how I got out of it. My friend Jesus Christ got me out of it. My Savior Jesus Christ took me to a whole new level. Paul encountered diversity and he adjusted his focus. I told you a few minutes ago I believe that Paul changed his whole focus in the ministry. He moved from the Jews to the Greeks, but also, you know, he realized, I'm going to invest, I'm going to plant seeds, and I'm going to move on. If God leads me to stay around the water and harvest, I'll do that. But I'm no longer wasting my time on people that do not want to hear it. I'm sharing the gospel everywhere I go with everybody I can. They reject me. They try to kill me. They run me out of the city. You know what? Bye-bye. I'm moving on to the next city. That's what he's doing here. And he quoted out of Ezekiel. If you look down there to verse 6 that we just read in, in Acts 17. But when they opposed him and blasphemed him, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your hands, heads. I am clean. From now I will go to the Gentiles. You know what he's saying here? He was talking about the watchman on the wall. From the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, chapter 33. God told them, hey, I set a watchman upon the wall. And if that watchman sees the enemy and sounds the alarm and the people do not respond, then the blood is on those people's hands. But if I set a watchman on the wall, and this kind of applies to the church today in America. If I set a watchman on the wall today and he sees the enemy coming but does not sound the alarm and those people die, then their blood is on that watchman's hands. I want you to think about that. I don't know if you connected the dots here, but very simply put, that you and I are the watchmen on the wall today in America for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we're not sharing the gospel and people die, you know what happens? That blood is on our hands. We had an opportunity to tell them about Jesus Christ. We're not going to lose our salvation. But listen, God's looking down and said, hey, you missed another one. You missed another one. Your pastor has missed a couple of people in his life. I knew I was supposed to share the gospel and I missed it. I just didn't do it. I'm thankful, not for the, those specific cases, but I'm thankful that God did not let me forget that so I can remember to always do it. Anytime I hear God say and share that with that person, I do it. I want to do it. Live your life compelled by the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that truly mean? It means that God has given us a power. And unfortunately, many times we quench that power. If you have your Bibles real quickly, turn with me to Ephesians 4. I want you to read this. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Scripture tells us, uh, I'm going to read that in just a minute, but as you're turning there, Scripture tells us that nothing is impossible with God, that all things are possible with Him. It also tells us in Ephesians 3.20, our, our church verse, Now to Him who is able, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power, the Holy Spirit power that rests in us. 
What is impossible with God? Nothing. That God is able. God can take just average people and do extraordinary things. But I want you to look at this scripture with me very quickly. Ephesians 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of, a, of the Gentiles walk in the fertility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness and greediness. But you have learned not so, you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows up corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now drop down to verse 30. Verse 30, Ephesians 4. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. What Paul is telling the church at Ephesus here. Said, man, you're a brand new creation. You're a brand new nature. You're a new person. Put on the new you. Put on Jesus Christ. Do not quench the Holy Spirit, as it said there in verse 30. You know what happens to too many of us? Sometimes unwittingly, sometimes on purpose, we quench the Holy Spirit. It's like we put a wet blanket on top of the Holy Spirit, and so we miss the power that God wants to use us. For whatever reason, business can do that. Not growing can do that. Not reading God's holy word, not being close to Jesus Christ can do that. All these things can do us. Am I living in the Holy Spirit? Is my life filled with power? I'm seeing power beyond my abilities. I'm seeing God do great mighty things through me. How can He do them through thee? Because of the power, the Holy Spirit flows through us. Think about this. How many of you guys or ladies have ever gone and couldn't start your car? Just couldn't get that thing started. It started yesterday, ran fine. You pop the hood and look down there at the battery. And all over the battery connections there is what? Corrosion, right? There's no longer a connection to the power. That's the picture of quenching the Holy Spirit. That battery, that battery gives you power to run that car. Without the connection to that power because of that corrosion, it's not going anywhere. You have to take those cables off and clean them all off, get a brush out maybe, and I heard Coke, and in fact I've used Coke before, it does that kind of city and the Coke there, cleans those things off, pop them back on, and you're in good business. It's that simple with the Holy Spirit as well. Just getting out of the way of the Holy Spirit. Saying, don't let me quench the Holy Spirit anymore. I want to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to live in that Holy Spirit power because I want to see great mighty things by God's hand in my life. God, I want you to use my life. Three things. Seek out some godly friends. Live your life compelled by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, in conclusion here, stand on the promises of God. Stand on the promises of God. Verses 9 through 11. Look at those very quickly. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid. You know God knew where Paul was at. He knew he was discouraged. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you. For I have many people in the city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God. And I'll add to this. He built a great church. But there's three things here in verse 10 that he gives us. That we have the promise of God's presence. We have the promise of God's presence. We have the promise of God's protection. And we have the promise of God's potential. While friends encourage us a lot, and it's important to have great encouragers in our life, the greatest encouragement comes from the Lord. We have the promise of God's presence. Remember when Joshua was getting ready to cross over the river Jordan there? God says, Have I not commanded you to be strong and of courage? Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Think about the Great Commission. 
Jesus Christ gave it to his apostles. He said this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even in the essence of death, that Paul is with us. He says in Psalms 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even in times of great sorrow, times of great discouragement, times of sickness, times of financial reversal, times of heartache, times of family problems and marriage problems, remember, the God of the mountain is still the God in the valley. God tells us that he, he is our greatest strength. Jesus Christ is our greatest strength in our moments of weakness. Secondly, we have the promise of God, the promise of God's protection. God has a purpose for your life. God is going to prevail in all circumstances. God is going to get you through the storms. Remember when Jesus Christ told the apostles to get in the boat and go to the other side? He did that a number of times. Go to the other side. He was getting ready to change the focus of his ministry. But he sent his apostles out in the sea. Did, did he know there was going to be a storm out there? Absolutely. But it says he sent them out of the sea, and he went up on the mountain and prayed. While they were going across that sea, he was on the hilltop praying. The middle of the night, the storm arose. Jesus walked out there, and he said, storm, be still. They were worried that they were going to die. They were worried they were going to sink. Jesus was in control. Jesus knew what was going on. Jesus knows what's going on in your life. He knows you're not going to sink unless it's time for him to take you home. But Jesus is in control. And so all we need to do in the midst of those storms is realize that Jesus is praying for us, but Jesus is also in control. We have God's protection. Remember Joshua 1.5? God told Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. When Joshua finally crossed the river Jordan and their first tactical objective was the city of Jericho, before he even began to sit down with his generals and talk about the strategy, God pulled Jer uh, Joshua aside and said, listen, I've already given you Jericho and its mighty men of valor. He said, it's already yours. God says, I've already given you victory. Listen very carefully. God has already given you your victories in your life, too. It's a matter of working towards them. It's a matter of realizing that you're not working for victory. You're working uh, to the, from the victory. He's already given it to you. So I'm going to stand strong and watch the victory that God gives me out of the storm. Finally, we have the promise of God's power. It says in verse 10 there, for I have many people in the city. You know what he's saying? He was saying, Paul, I see something you don't see yet. I see people in here that are hungry for hope. They're hungry to have a non-disturbed or discouraged spirit. They're, they have empty and longing souls. I see this, Paul. The sin of Corinth broke God's heart. And he knew that he was going to use Paul to do that. He was telling Paul, listen, I've already given you these people. I've already given you the victory. You haven't even met them yet. I've already given you the victory. I want you to think deep about this for just a second. You think God sees something different about America than we do? I believe God's heart is breaking, just like ours is for our nation, but he sees something different. 
He sees people in our nation that need to hear about hope, that need to see somebody that lives in the glory of God, somebody that believes in Jesus Christ and follows him, that it's, it's exhibited in their life. They live that way. God sees America, I believe, the way it can be if his people who are called by his name will do those things that it talks about in Second Corinthians, Second Chronicles 7.14. America breaks God's heart, but he sees something different. He's looking for the Pauls of this generation to stand up and make a difference for the cause of Christ here in this nation. We need to seek out godly friends. We need to live our life compelled by the Holy Spirit. Get out of the way of the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit flow through us. Beg God to show up. Pray your way into being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then stand on the promises of God. Heard a little story about a couple guys that were trying to start a lawn mowing business. They were walking down the street and saw some guy that was mowing a couple acres by hand. It was a push mower. They went over to him and said, hey, uh, we'd like to mow your lawn for you. In fact, we'll do it for $2 if you will. And the guy looked at him kind of indignantly, indignantly and said, uh, don't you see I'm mowing it myself? And the boys looked back up at him and said, you know what? We get most of our business that people are about halfway through and they're ready to give up. That's where we get most of our business. It's too soon to quit. I know it's discouraging. I just get discouraged for just a few moments too when I see some of the mess on TV and the things that's happening out here. You know what? God sees it too. God knows what we're to do. God wants you and I to be love. He wants us to be a difference maker in this world. He wants us to be impact players and go out and lead people to the Lord. You're going to hear more about this in the days ahead, but uh, next year, I've already been again praying, and I'll tell you about this a number of times before January 1st, but I'm praying that our church would see at least 365 people saved next year because of the outreach of this church. You know what that is? That's about one person for every four people that says they remember here. Imagine if everybody that says they remember here did that. So I believe that 365 is the minimum standard. It says back in Acts 2 that they were adding to the church daily. That means at least 365 people this next year. So you begin praying about that now, too, if you will. But God desires for us to be salt and light. God desires for you and I to be the difference makers in America today.